morning. The passage we're going to be looking at, continuing the study of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 127. If you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading from the uh, Christian Standard Version. I think we might have the King James Version up on the screen for you. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this, Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. I pray, Lord, that you'd give each of us ears to hear your voice because we need to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way, that your Holy Spirit would fill me and that you would speak through me. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So the passage, this psalm we are considering today, is pretty well known, or at least probably its words are known. You may not have known they came from this psalm itself. That first verse often appears on decorative items designed for hanging on the door or walls of a home. Perhaps some of us here have something like this in our own homes. And the final verses speak of the blessings of children to their parents. In today being Father's Day, there is something of a temptation to immediately begin applying the passage to our own situation, but all in good time. One of the foundational principles of sound Bible interpretation is this. Before we can know what a passage means to us or to me, I or we must first know what it means. That is, before we apply the truths of this psalm to our immediate situation or day, we need to put in the work to understand and interpret it in its own context so we don't misapply it. So let's spend a little bit of time together examining the passage in its own context with a view to drawing out some of those eternal truths that we can then apply to our lives. And there are three primary theories on the context for this psalm, I almost said three. <laughs> like in Two of those have King Solomon as their author being written, and the other is that the psalm is being written in the style of King Solomon, but actually was written during the time of the return of the exiles from Babylon. And I'd like to consider that third one first. Some scholars think... Uh, all the military references, I don't know if you noticed, there are a lot of military references in this psalm, but there are. And uh, some scholars think that those military references, along with the fact that the immediate pre- predecessor to this one, that is Psalm 126, re- that refers to re- return, that this points, that this psalm uh, refers to a post-exilic timing. 
Now, you may recall, especially if you have been participating in our Wednesday night studies of the Minor Prophets, that after Solomon's death, there was division within God's people. The northern tribes, ten of them, rebelled against Solomon's successor, Rehoboam, and formed their own nation called Israel with Samaria as its capital. The other two tribes remained loyal to the line of David, and so Judah, the southern kingdom, had Jerusalem as its capital, along with, obviously, housing the temple. In both kingdoms, though, there was significant pressure to adopt at least some of the forms and practices of pagan worship, in particular the worship of the gods of the world powers of the day, Assyria and then later Babylon. And as the Israelites in the north and then later the Judeans in the south incorporated pagan practices into their worship of God, they came under the judgment of God. And eventually that judgment took the form of invasion by a foreign army and exile to a foreign land. Again, Israel in the north was subjugated by Assyria in the 8th century B.C., and the tribes were carried into exile, never to return, at least, at least not formally, as the tribes taking possession of their ancestral lands. Judah in the south held out a little bit longer, but was conquered by Babylon in the 6th century B.C., and its people were carried into exile in Babylon. Of course, we read about that in uh, some of the prophets like Daniel, for example. And so other peoples were settled or brought in, Uh, to Judah to settle that land. But God moved the heart of Cyrus, king of the Medeo-Persian Empire, which had replaced Babylon, to allow the Judeans to return and to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And so the Judeans returned in the later part of the 6th century B.C. with Zerubbabel as their governor, working to restore God's temple. But as we read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the return was fraught with difficulty and danger. The peoples now living in the land did not like the Jews coming in and attempting to restore their nation. They felt threatened by the return of the exiles, and they did everything they could to prevent the building of both the temple and the city walls. In fact, they would sneak out at night to tear down any progress made during the day, and they threatened the workers with harm so that the Jewish men had to, uh, had to guard the work at night, and during the day they had to work with one hand on their sword at all times. The Judeans had to stay in groups for their own safety, and so as you can imagine, the work was hampered, and they saw this as a tax from the evil one. Right? Attacks against the Lord and against God's divine plan for his people. And now if you consider the psalm then in that context for a moment, just imagine the people living and working under those conditions, seeking to return to the land that God had promised to them in his covenant with Abraham. And they have endured his chastisement for a time, but now they were filled with hope that his further promises of restoration, some of which we've read about in the prophets, right, were about to be fulfilled. But then now they're in the land and they're facing stiff opposition and even threat to their very lives. And so they seek to build the house of the Lord, but only as he leads them. They had to rely on him to open the door for their return 
through the decree of a pagan king who really had no strategic interest in allowing them to return. There was no good reason for it, except God had moved his heart. And now they must rely on God to make straight their path forward. Of course, in verse 1, they express this. But they also recognize that there are very real and pragmatic steps that they have to take in order to protect their work and to ensure their own safety and the safety of their families as they proceed. And so the strapping young men, the men who are able to take up arms, are vital to the accomplishment of God's purposes in their return. God must build the house, but the young fighting men are a needed blessing in that work because there are enemies at the gates seeking to thwart those efforts. So the young men involved in the negotiations can serve as a deterrence to continued opposition. Of course, that's in verses 4 and 5 of our psalm. The other two contexts that I mentioned see this psalm not only as written in the style of Solomon, but actually written by Solomon. The Hebrew manuscripts have uh, the title, or in the title, of Solomon. And although it can mean in the style of it normally and most naturally is taken to indicate, of course, authorship. So the first context for Solomonic authorship I want us to consider is at the end of Solomon's life. So Solomon writing this sort of as a summation of his thoughts. And at first glance, this makes a lot of sense if you consider another of Solomon's later writings, Ecclesiastes. Right? You may have noticed some similarity here as we read through it, uh, at least in tone. Recall that Ecclesiastes serves as Solomon's final and mature reflection upon the meaning of life. The thoughts of perhaps the most wise man to have ever lived, personal mistakes notwithstanding, his reflections on the deepest philosophical questions of ultimate meaning. Right, as Solomon reflects on his own life and his fame and his accomplishments, his legacy as king, He notes that our efforts in building wealth or seeking a name for ourselves is vain, and it amounts to nothing. He calls it a chasing or a striving after the wind. That's in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 17, and also in 4, 6. He says that something we'll never really attain. You'll never be satisfied with all the wealth that you attain because there's always more to get, isn't there? He goes on to note that we all toil, we all die, all of us, right, all of us. And thus, we must invest, he says, in that which is lasting and that which is of greatest importance. And he mentions two things. One, relationships, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. And then number two, faith and trust in the Lord. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1, and also in 12, verse 1, And that's how he concludes his thoughts on it. Here's what he says at the end of Ecclesiastes. He says this. The conclusion, when all is heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, no matter who you are. Now, read in this context, of course, Psalm 127 can be read as a summary of Ecclesiastes' conclusions. Right? It says, we must build our houses on the foundation of faith in God. 
And we should encourage, we should acknowledge that the most precious blessings we have are our relationships, starting with our families, our children. And of course, this is true, right? But although this context seems to fit our psalm, right, the first three stanzas of our psalm appear to mimic the beginning of Ecclesiastes with their references to vanity, it actually probably is not when Solomon wrote the psalm. I've been stringing you along all this time here. One reason for saying this is simply the fact that the Hebrew words for vain and vanity that, are, that we see in English in uh, our Bibles, they're not the same in the two works. So although they look similar in English, the parallels are not actually as clear in the Hebrew. So let us consider what I take to be the most likely context for our psalm. The time of the building of the original temple during Solomon's reign. Right, a song of ascent, again, is uh, a song that people sang as they went to the temple. Well, I think it might have been as they were completing the temple is when Solomon first wrote it for that very purpose. Notice that in then two of our three scenarios, the people of God are literally building the house of the Lord, constructing the temple building in two of those understandings. These interpret one are restoring it, the other one they're building it originally. These interpretations then take the reference to building in verse 1 quite literally. But consider the time of temple construction in Solomon's day for just a moment. The nation was unified under a single claimant to the throne after several civil wars. First, Saul versus David, then Absalom versus David, and finally with Adonijah's intrigues against his half-brother Solomon. And the people were finally established in the land. David had secured the borders of the land before his death. God's covenant promises to Abraham seemed ready to be fulfilled as the people had entered the promised land as instructed by, Moses, uh, by God through Moses. And they had established God's Torah as the law of the land. The way the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled had already been clarified then in God's covenant with David and the prophecy concerning the tribe of Judah, right? It had been narrowed down. And now Solomon, a Davidic descendant and a godly leader, sat on the throne and prepared to institute a permanent place of worship of the Lord for all peoples at Jerusalem, as the prophets had proclaimed or were to proclaim. All the meticulous instructions for construction and for sacred elements and implements and decorations that you can read about in Leviticus that had been, that God had given had been followed, right? They had all been followed. And now the people prepared for a sacred celebration like no other. So our psalm of ascent then speaks to God's covenant faithfulness, to how he called Abraham and how he promised to give him descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore. How he promised to establish Abraham's descendants as a people dedicated to God and how he would give them a land of their own. But it also speaks to how God used Moses to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, to provide them with his law so that they may be a nation in the promised land and how he was faithful to those promises by establishing the house of David as a royal lineage with a perpetual uh, kingship of godly leaders for his people. Now, if we think about that then, so when the psalm speaks of children as a blessing for protection, and when it says that the Lord watches over a city and he grants his loved ones rest, 
It remembers the conflicts of the recent past. It remembers those difficulties the Hebrews had faced in coming to this place. And it remembers how God has used the younger generation to ground his people as a nation in the land with security and with a future. It also refers then to the fulfillment of God's initial promises to Abraham of numerous descendants. Well, so what are we to make of this somewhat brief survey of possible contexts? I think several common features emerge from them. First, a complete and utter dependence upon God is key to a successful life. Right? For men, you thought I was, eventually I'm going to come back to men, Father's Day, right? For men, especially those who are fathers, there is a responsibility to set the tone for spirituality in the home and to set an example for our children. Right? Our children should see in us an example of yieldedness to and reliance upon God. Right? Just as the Israelites had to trust God to lead them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And just as the Judeans had to wait upon the Lord to move King Cyrus to issue the decree allowing them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild, so also we must rely upon God to lead us in our decisions, to provide for our needs. This is not always easy, as it may seem, especially these days. Right? When we've lost a job or lost income, or are unsure how we will be able to meet our financial obligations. It can be particularly difficult, I think, for men to wait upon the Lord before acting. When our marriages are struggling, it can be hard to refrain from trying to just fix it in our own strength. And when our children are hurting, it can be tough to allow the pain to shape them rather than just jumping in to intervene. But we must allow God to work and stay out of his way. If he wants us to do something, he'll let us know. Right? But in order to hear him, we must first be yielded to him. And when we're yielded to him, we truly trust in the Lord for our provision and protection, as in verses 1 and 2, then we will not only we will not have anxiety about those things so many of us find ourselves obsessing about. As Chris mentioned, I'm a colonel in the Army National Guard, and many of you know that I have an ever-so-slight chance at selection for general. This past week, I spent some time at Fort Hood taking care of some things related to my possible promotion. These issues have been a source of some contingency, uh, putting it mildly, in my life for the last few years. And I'll admit that some little bit of anxiety has crept into my thoughts about the future of my military career. But I, and I would say we, uh, have to remember that God is in control. And when we accept that and really take it to heart, right, Solomon says, we will be able to sleep through the night despite the unknowns and the contingencies, verse 2. Well, secondly, we must recognize what God values most and order our values accordingly. Relationships especially family relationships, but we could extend that to church family relationships, friends and others, right? Relationships, those to and for whom we are primarily responsible should come first in our lives. This is where many of us men, I think, get it wrong. Too often we allow our pursuits, often our careers, to become our primary focus. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean... 
I don't mean this to be accusatory because uh, I've had to sacrifice a lot due to the nature of my careers. And I don't mean to suggest that men who focus on their careers care more about money or recognition than about their families. I mean, some of them do. But oftentimes, I think oftentimes, it is the man's sense of love for and his sense of obligation to his family that leads him to focus so much on his career to the detriment of his family. And, of course, that becomes a self-defeating proposition. Our wives and our kids want our time even more than a big house. And let me say this as my thinking of my son, even more than the Nintendo Switch he's been bugging me about for weeks now. (laughs) Third, we should acknowledge God's faithfulness to his covenant promises and his providence over world affairs. Now, I know this sounds similar to the first point, and it does, but I wanted to highlight it separately today for two reasons. Number one, given the difficult circumstances our nation and our communities are currently experiencing, between a still largely unknown disease of pandemic proportions and the civil unrest and ethnic and racial tensions, we as the church need to be able to speak hope and peace into the world and into our local Birmingham community. All of us. But let me, let me say here, men need to be careful to communicate love and respect and a sense that God is at work even in the midst of struggle. There is hope. There is hope for the ills we face. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. And of course, this leads to the second point. God's faithfulness to his covenant promises is ultimately seen and ultimately realized in the person of Jesus Christ. He met the righteous requirements of the law because we couldn't. He paid the penalty for our sins and he rose from the dead to conquer the power of sickness and death in this world and to reconcile to reconcile all persons from all tribes, from all nations, all ethnicities, and I'm going to put races in air quotes because we're really one human race, but all races, to God first and through him to one another. The answer for the ills that we face is Jesus Christ. Right Now, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, of course, today is the day, right? The invitation is open. As we're going to sing in just a moment, we're going to sing song, I Surrender All. (laughs) Surrendering our lives to the Lord. Men, surrendering our families, our careers to the Lord. If you've never accepted Christ, let today be the day. Myself, uh, Pastor Chris, Pastor Kevin will be out in the the foyer uh, and be happy to talk with you, share with you some scripture, and to read with you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. We thank you for the reminder of your love for us, of your control over uh, the world affairs, but also uh, for the peace that we can have when we... Uh, seek you fully with our hearts. We thank you for our families. We pray that you would reign supreme in our homes. And Lord, we as as, uh, fathers especially, we pray that uh, you would lead us, each of us, uh, to yield our control in our homes to you so that you may be honored and glorified in all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.